welcome to Things That Will Help with Buffy Barfoot. This podcast explores what it's like to be human and how to find tools to feel clear, grounded, and happier. Each episode will have a different theme, and we'll talk about things that help to bring that theme to real life. The human stories ahead do not negate the heart or the dark, but rather point to the lighthouses along the way. This is Buffy. Today I'm pulling from a few different wells. The first one is grace, or grace land. The second is assumption. And the third well is the exceptions to these things. I'm now bumping up against topics that are not as easy to teach because they are not pocket-sized ideas that have a start and a finish. I'm now into territory that leaks, that has holes, that has exceptions and maybes and it depends. So bear with me, listeners, because I'm learning alongside you in this podcast. I am now in uncharted territory. The first story I want to tell you is about grace, as in grace land. One year after Benjamin died, my mom bought red drawstring satin bags for us to tote Benjamin's ashes into Graceland. He was watching a movie when he died called Finding Graceland. And Benjamin liked Elvis enough for us to put him there. If Freddie Mercury had had a house to visit, it would have been better, but Memphis was drivable from Montgomery and it had mystique. Before we got in the car, my mom and I rationed the ashes with a spoon into plastic Ziploc bags first and then into the red satin bags for the finished look. It was so surreal and horrifying to spoon the gray dust into those Ziploc bags without spilling him. And I remember we broke the intensity up with awkward laughter. And thank goodness we had these decorative bags to cover the story because we didn't know what to do with ourselves. We had picked out the bags at World Market the day before and decided that they were perfect for the task. Small red satin things to mark the biggest things that our hearts had ever had to face. When we got to Graceland, we decided the best way to go about it was to go on a prescribed tour of Elvis's home that was offered every day. My dad, my mom, and myself, along with Clay, who was Benjamin's best friend, filed in behind the Elvis fans, clutching our red bags underneath purses and coats. I think it was January. So the layers of clothes that we wore covered up any evidence of Benjamin. And we wandered, all of us kind of glassy-eyed, into the jungle room. And there was a man on an audio recording who was narrating Elvis tidbits as we shuffled along. And I knew that my parents were looking to me for that, for that green light moment. And I remember thinking that Graceland was so much smaller than I thought it would be. And it seemed impossibly ordinary to have housed such a legend. 
So after you walk through the house and the tour, which doesn't take all that long, then we arrived in the backyard and they gave us free time to kind of wander around. People wandered around near the gravesite because Elvis is buried in the backyard. I remember near the gravesite, there's a white gazebo in the corner of the yard. It was a pretty small backyard also. When I had called earlier to ask, the management told me that it was illegal to spread human ashes on the grounds of Graceland. I thanked him and I hung up. We decided to do it anyway. Benjamin would love that we were premeditating something against the law on his behalf. (laughs) So I think we were all secretly feeling thrilled along with our heartbreak. It was this profound paradox that gave the entire day such a strange feel. There was a security guard in the corner of the yard, and I mostly had my eyes on him because we were awkwardly fumbling with our bags as we surely looked lost and less Elvis-focused than the other people. At some point, this man, whom I will never forget, locked eyes with me, and he softened his entire body visibly. He turned around with ceremony and bowed his head and folded his hands behind his back with marked reverence. I looked at my parents with urgency and I said, now. We scattered his ashes in the yard, but it was completely different than the romantic toss that you see in the movies. I remember I spilled a little bit on my shoes and Some of the chunky bone fragments got stuck in the grass and on the stone walkway. I poured him out a little bit too fast because I knew that the man would turn around again soon. But somehow we managed to scatter him all out and there was a release in the motion of it all. Graceland had given us such a Benjamin-style ceremony and that sweet man had given our family space to break a rule and allowed for levity. And that's really what grace is. When something or somebody comes in the middle of the day to ease things a little and the path clears so that the light can turn green. Usually these kinds of humans never know how much they've shifted the day for you. And I wonder if he did. He must have known. Graceland, it turned out, had lived up to its name. On the most ordinary days, grace still belongs to us. It's our birthright and something that comes in even when we're not on our best behavior. But I think we do have to look up from our phones and we have to pay attention to her when she comes in. That man on the Graceland grounds, he had assumed that we had positive intent He wanted to believe that we had a special story and a brave reason to break the rules of the house. I wish I knew his name. And I wish I could tell him what an integral part of my story he is and how he is in part responsible for my trust in the human spirit. And I want to tell you another story today, a story that's a little bit more complicated than that one. One time, I took a training that had about 15 people in it. 
It was a mixture of yoga teachers and front desk staff and advisors and people who cleaned the yoga studio. And we all worked for the same yoga company, but we had different roles within the company and we each contributed to the whole in a unique way. And because this company was pretty big in the city of Denver, we didn't all know each other, but there was there was a smattering of friendships and intimacies in the group, in the room. And the training was led by two people who had spent their lives training people in leadership. And so the overall mission of the three-day intensive was to become a better leader under the umbrella of this yoga studio or this yoga company. And I went into day one cooperative, but as an introvert, I do not tend to love groups like this. I do not love being put on the spot, and I especially do not love doing my learning in front of a bunch of people who I do not know. So there we were, learning out loud, and me already not loving it. The vulnerability, the out-of-control feeling of pressure, and the relentless pace of three days with 15 people locked in a room together for three days, nine hours a day. I think it was the second day. They split up the group into, they split up the big group into two groups and sent eight people to another room in in the building. And then they gave us a problem to solve with very little in the form of clues. And one of the leaders of the training stayed in our room and the other leader went to the other room. And the leader who was in our room stood up against the wall said nothing, and periodically aroused suspicion by scribbling something on a notebook every now and then. And they watched us while we talked. We discussed the problem and the possible path to solution. We turned it this way, and we turned it that way, and we turned it upside down and sideways. And we didn't really have a lot to go on. And then all of a sudden, the leaders switched rooms. Different leaders, same suspicious scribbles on a notebook while we discussed our options. And they'd given us a time limit, and that time was running out. And somebody in our group named Anna said something like, why don't we go get the other group and combine our thoughts, see what they're thinking? And I'm the one that looked at her and said no. I said, we can't trust them. We won't win. And then I said a few other things like, be careful what you say or the other group will find out our strategy. And I think I also said, we should not trust Terry in the corner. She's writing things down. They switch rooms. The other team is going to discover our secrets. Things like that. Okay, so time's up and the leaders gather everybody back into the same circle. They set us down. And then they said, we never told you that you were on teams, that you were competing against one another, and that you couldn't combine forces to solve the problem. And then they read back some of the things that we had said to each other. And I have to tell you, I was absolutely horrified. I was the worst one. I sounded like a paranoid, distrustful grouch who had no faith in humanity. It was huge, huge, huge learning for me. And the teaching that came next as they unraveled the learning was this. Assume 
positive intent. Assume that people, when you don't know the whole story, that people want the best for you and the good for you. And I was floored at how I was not in that instance, in that training, wired to do this. I consider myself a person who loved people, who took care of people, who had faith and trust in the world overall, and somebody who believed in the overall good that all humans possess. But that day, I kind of really showed, showed a different story. And this was about three years ago. And I have to tell you, I'm still unpacking it. I think maybe the root of that thinking, suspicious and not trusting and worried, etc., does stem from a scarcity mindset rather than one of abundance. And because I learned about my tendency out loud in front of a bunch of people, it was in a way more impactful, and I have not forgotten it. And I didn't want to feel that way. I didn't want to have suspicion as a baseline. I didn't want to mistrust and I didn't want that to be where I began with people or assuming there was competition instead of potential collaboration. The possibility to connect to other people instead of feeling threatened by them. That, I think, points directly to abundance mindset over scarcity mindset. And I don't like feeling like people are going to take something or steal something away or that somehow there isn't enough. I wanted to truly climb inside of my wiring and change the pattern that leadership training had revealed in me. I wanted to believe in the magic and the willingness of people to do good and be good. And I wanted that to be the place where I begin. Assuming positive intent and giving grace, giving a grace land in places where I don't really know what the story is. And there are very clear exceptions to Graceland's and to assuming positive intent. And I've found three really important exceptions, and I'm certain that there are more. Number one, with systemic racism rampant in our society, telling any one person of color that they should assume positive intent when it comes to someone else's racist actions or speech, intentional or not, is simply harmful and incredibly destructive. And this runs wide and deep through the workplace as well as interpersonal relationships, from microaggressions to more blatant and obvious racist behavior. So, for example, if a white girl said some racist but unintentional things at the all-employee meeting yesterday, and you are a person of color, and you mentioned your discomfort or your anger with her to another coworker, and that person told you to assume positive intent because surely Caroline didn't mean that in a racist way. This is way harmful. This is not okay. Giving grace should never, ever be obligatory. It must be self-directed in order to be healthy. Number two, 
on the exception list. When somebody, family or friend or otherwise, repeatedly gaslights you, and you, assuming positive intent, feels like more gaslighting, this truly can cause harm. However, if it's your daddy that's gaslighting you and creating alternative realities that make you feel like you're crazy, then perhaps, and this is a big maybe, you might feel like assuming positive intent gives you peace about him. Because it's all you can bear. And the alternative is too emotionally draining and holds you captive somehow. I think it's your right to assume positive intent in that situation if it helps you make it through the day. In some cases, it's emotional survival. Number three, remember that movie, He's Just Not That Into You? I think it was a movie or maybe it was just a book. I'm not sure. So the human that is leaving you tiny breadcrumbs or ghosting you after a date or two, or they slept with you and didn't call you, assuming positive intent is likely going to be harming to you. And it's your choice, of course, to travel down that road of false hope. But ultimately, assuming positive intent will prolong the inevitable heartbreak and it will block your healing. I would suggest do not continue to make up excuses for this person. If you know in your gut they're not choosing you with full heart, then cut that cord and run like hell. Basically, I think that when assuming positive intent is harmful is when somebody else is imposing it on you. Because you should be able to pick and choose where you assume that positive intent. It must be self-directed and driven from gut instinct. It's your bus to drive. And I think you can assume positive intent and still ask questions, still support clarity and growth in other people, still have clear boundaries, still have moments where you teach someone how to treat you. The reason that I've adopted assume positive intent for many of my situations, though not all of them, but many, is that I have been wounded enough and I've been poor enough and lost enough, I've suffered enough sadness and betrayal that I just started to feel gross, suspicious and not trusting and scarce and wounded and victim-y. And I really just didn't want to feel that way anymore. And I recognize my energy is currency. And I didn't want to be rounded over in my dark cave, peeking out of the crack, looking for proof that someone was trying to hurt me or trying to take away my joy. And it offers me more peace of mind and heart when I live wider than that dark cave. And when I stay open to people and their complicated stories. And if somebody's not doing their best, mostly, I think it's because they too have been so hurt along the way somehow. I want to believe that there's enough for each of us to meet our potential and purpose with overflow. And I want to believe that the goodness outweighs the shadow in most humans. And my personal world feels better when I move from that assumption. 
Another attacking point, assuming positive intent, is specific to the places where we don't actually know the story. We don't know why someone has not called you back. We don't know why they can't help you today with the kids. We don't know why they decided to exclude you from the book club. We don't know why they didn't tell you about their new business venture or include you in the wedding plans. We don't know why they forgot your birthday. We don't know why they lost their temper. And we don't know why they didn't ask you to be on the team to set up a new vein of the company. We just don't know. We don't know. And what I've discovered is that I'm better off not filling in my own narrative and assuming the worst. And if I hold the space of potential and possibility open, then my world has more light. And I'm so interested in our world having more light. One last story of humanness, of grace, of grace lands. Before this pandemic changed us all, on Monday mornings I used to teach an early yoga class downtown. It felt so productive to drive in and set up in the creaky wooden space well before the sun came up. And I so loved being up early, particularly on Mondays. And it seemed to set up the week with such potential and focus. And I tended to keep the lights low for much of the class and people would creak and pop in their morning bodies. No one said very much. And I said less than usual so that the morning could come in without much interference. Mostly when it's that early, people practice yoga like they're crawling out of hibernation. There was an apartment building directly across from the yoga studio, and the class began while the city was still sleeping. The old apartments had these big windows that told stories, and I imagine they were drafty, and they were made up of the original glass that allowed for that vintage and beautiful warping that you see in old windows. And as I guided the poses, There was always a couple who would begin their day in front of us with no curtains. Usually about the time that we got through sun salutations, they had turned on the lights and began their their morning coffee ritual. We had privy to their kitchen and their common living space. And, And last year, I remember, they did have a Christmas tree that they set up. And they would get their drinks and they would bustle around the room still shuffling in slippers and robes for a good portion of our class. And they seemed really kind to each other. And they appeared deliberate about starting the day with a steady purpose and slow steps. And they would usually sit down and look right at each other by the window, which I love the most. Often about the time that we were winding down towards softer and more supine poses. And one morning, I remember it looked like a fight, but the fight seemed to melt before they left the apartment. And during a class, about three Mondays after I first noticed them, a small head bobbed along the top of the window. They had a child in the space only every now and then. And it seemed like 
that there were more lights on when the child was there. There was more vitality when there were three instead of two. And, and I guess maybe they tried more, too. The small person's inconsistent presence reminded me that we all still have detours and broken relationships and repaired stories. We all have spaces where we need grace, where we need others to assume our positive intent, and where we need others to love us despite the ways we have crashed and come up short. And it turned out after a while to be a class of really faithful regulars on Mondays, and I assumed that they noticed this family at the window. Mostly, I think I enjoyed this family because it felt so incredibly tender and human to watch them. I saw the tension and the love and the ordinary rituals every Monday. And in that class, I taught on the loaded word guru. I talked about this a couple of episodes ago. The word guru means dispeller of darkness. And the guru principle is anything that moves us from darkness to light. So a guru can come in the form of a yoga pose, a two-year-old, a security guard at Graceland, an uncomfortable training with learning out loud, or the way the sunlight shines through an old window, or witnessing somebody's humanity on a regular Monday. It seems like when we practice really paying attention, there's a treasure map of teachers always right in front of us. And I suppose that this family could see us too, and that they might be receiving some kind of grace in return. And maybe they even talked about us over their coffee by the window. So in sum, assume positive intent when you can and when it feels right in your bones. And don't when someone else seems to be requiring it of you in like a Pollyanna sort of way and your bones don't feel right about it. You get to be in charge of the pace of your healing. In whatever ordinary ways that find their way to you. Restore your faith in humanity. Try and release suspicion, mistrust, hatred, and hardening from your body, no matter what you've been through. Being softer on people doesn't mean that you have to lose who you are. Be wider than your dark cave. Don't fall into the pattern of being the town gossip or the crotchety old witch peering out looking for proof that the world is broken. Instead, as much as you can, give grace in big doses and light the way for people to trust again. God knows we all need more guards at Graceland, don't we?